from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, with more than 100 degree programs offered in four locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. West Virginia University, a land-grant, space-grant, R1 research institution. Learn more at wvu.edu. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com. Good evening from Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. On the legislature today, highlights of activity from both the House and Senate this week, plus a conversation with education committee leadership about a myriad of bills, including the proposed HOPE scholarship program. That's an effort to establish educational savings accounts from public education funds to use for private school or homeschooling. So this actually doesn't remove money for public education. It is an additional feature to public education. Uh, if you have $4,600 uh, via a voucher and it comes out and follows the student and therefore goes to homeschool participation uh, or a private school participation, that funding is still not in the school because it's followed the child to the new school. We'll have that conversation later, but first, senior reporter Dave Mistich joins me after a week of following Senate action, which moved quickly into House action. Dave, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. I wanted to start with Senate Bill 14, which provides alternative certification options for teachers. This is a bill by the Senate Education Chair, Patricia Rucker. Um, it targets people who have had long careers who want to come back and to teach. The, the example today was, you know, an accountant who wants to teach math. Um, it passed easily and it is now on the way to the governor. That's right. You've been following Senate Bill 11. Tell right. us about that. That's of course this anti-strike bill and, and what it seeks to do is codify this 1990 uh, Supreme Court decision that deemed strikes as illegal. Of course everyone remembers the strikes from 2018 and 2019. Uh, Democrats and some of these unions are calling it retaliation for those strikes. Uh, but the bill moved through the Senate, uh, made its way to the House, was immediately taken up and was on the amendment stage Thursday. Uh, and they removed, uh, by way of amendment, this one provision in the bill that uh, would prohibit extracurricular activities on days when, when a strike was happening. We'll take a listen to some of the uh, conversation around that on the House floor on Thursday. The problem is, is you don't just punish the students in that school, you're punishing the students in the other school that would be having that, that event. And this could happen, you know, without any notice to anybody. Um, I do agree with the uh, delegate and his, the fellow delegates on the amendment. I think uh, this is really about the kids. That's what our purpose is here for, to make it better for them, and we shouldn't penalize them. So I would be in agreement with the amendment. I, I do believe what we're indicating by passing this amendment is that those activities are, are more important than, than the school day. And I believe that we are potentially authorizing those that are, that are, that are specifically uh, flying in the face of state law, which to me currently we don't, they don't have the right to strike. This simply uh, ex expands upon that and confirms it, that we're, we're telling those that violate that law, that very important law that they need to be in this classroom, 
that it's okay because the thing that they really enjoy doing after school that they can be allowed to do with, with their students. And again, that uh, Senate Bill 11, uh, they took that, that provision out. So as of now, uh, this provision that would prohibit extracurricular, extracurricular activities was taken out. Um, and the bill actually today in the uh, House Rules Committee was taken off the active calendar and placed on the inactive calendar. So who knows uh, exactly when that bill will be up for passage. All right, and again, uh, this year, Senate Bill 275, it creates uh, Intermediate Court of Appeals. Right. Uh, we've been talking about this for years. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Comes at a cost of about $8 million. Uh, we create these, these two districts, one in the north, one in the south, with three judges each. Um, you know, Democrats have, have been arguing that, you know, it's unnecessary that the Supreme Court already issues an opinion on every case that it hears. Um, it, but, you know, Republicans are arguing that, you know, this would expedite the, the appellate process for, for all, the, all of these cases. Should point out that this only applies to civil cases. Um, and not criminal cases at all. And it has passed the Senate in previous years and not gotten through the House. We'll have to see what happens. That's right. I, I think it's kind of unknown where, where things are in the House at this point. And as you pointed out, for years and years, it's gotten right through the Senate and, you know, sort of faltered over there on the other side of the Capitol. Real briefly, the COVID-19 Jobs Protection Act, Senate Bill 277, where yeah. is that? So this would create, like, essentially a blanket immunity so no one could file a lawsuit um, based on infections, treatment, or death as it relates to the coronavirus. Uh, to date here in the state, there's been no none of those lawsuits that have come up. Um, but I should say that, you know, in the House Judiciary Committee uh, this week, they... Um, they amended the they, they there were attempts to amend the bill to make it softer to allow for some of these lawsuits to take place uh in the end all of those amendments were rejected they came from democrats they came from republicans uh i, I noticed in that the course of that meeting that the uh, vice chair of that committee uh delegate tom fast of Fayette county offered some amendments kind of strange going up against your chairman like that and uh, Delegate uh, Chad Lovejoy, a Democrat on that committee, even thanked uh, Delegate Fast for offering those amendments, said that it must have taken courage to offer those. But as I said, that, you know, that's, um, that bill, uh, no amendments were made to it. It's clean as it came over from the Senate, so to speak. And uh, as of right now, it'll be on first reading on Monday. All right, senior reporter Dave Mistich, thank you so much. Thanks, Suzanne. Before we leave Senate bills, an update on Senate Bill 12, which would give county commissions more control over decisions made by county health departments. Opponents argue the bill would take health decisions out of the hands of health officials. June Leffler reports the bill went from the Senate through the House and is now on its way back to the Senate in just four days. Senate Bill 12 would give county commissioners the authority to strike down ordinances coming from local boards of health. Prior to the Senate vote on Tuesday, Republican members said it gives the public greater representation in local health policy. Voters elect county commissioners, not board of health officials. Senate Judiciary Chair Charles Trump of Morgan County said that political leaders can respond to the economic and social impacts of health decisions. And we all agree, we have to have regulations to protect, promote public health, but they have to be balanced always. They have to be balanced against other considerations, fundamental personal freedom. The bill passed the Senate mostly along party lines. The same arguments were made in the House today. 
Democrats, including Delegate Sean Fluharty of Ohio County, say local health experts, rather than politically motivated elected officials, should be in charge of shaping science-based measures. He called out a fellow delegate for not wearing a mask on the House floor, saying that behavior is why elected officials should not control public health decisions, especially during a pandemic. And now we're going to say, let's get more politicians involved with our local health departments and expect them to magically follow the rules when they're not even professionals in the field. Health departments do a lot for communities. They inspect restaurants, child care facilities, and water sources. But they don't make a ton of regulations. Most of those safety standards are set by the state and federal government. One thing they do roll on is indoor smoking ordinances. V.J. Davis is the president of the West Virginia Association of Local Health Departments. Our fear is that we would be rolling back to the days when people could smoke in restaurants and smoke in public places. The bill passed the House 63 to 33 today. It is now on its way back to the Senate for their acceptance of amendments. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm June Leffler. Next, the education priorities of both parties. Senate Education Chair Patricia Rucker and House Education Minority Chair Sean Hornbuckle spoke this week with reporter Liz McCormick. Thank you both so much for joining us. Senator Rucker, I would like to start with you. I'd like to first talk about this education savings account bill that's in the House right now, House Bill 2013, the HOPE Scholarship Program. The bill as amended on the House floor would allow by the year 2026 that any child in West Virginia would be eligible to receive the per pupil allotment of the school aid formula for use in private or homeschooling. That's about $4,600 per child annually. And it's estimated that it would remove more than $100 million from public education funding. Um, Senator, I wanna ask, why is the majority party pursuing the use of public education um, money for private school? Okay, well, thank you very much, and, and appreciate having this opportunity to talk to folks about something that is very important to me, but I have to first correct something that you said. So this actually doesn't remove money from public education. It is an additional feature to public education, So, um, and especially that amendment. So the well, the way it was written at the beginning was only going to apply to currently enrolled public school students and it was focused on giving an option to those who don't have an option, those who um, don't have a school choice because they can't afford it. Uh, but the amendment that was put on the House floor, which would open it up in 2026, I believe that um, the intention of that amendment was to show that in West Virginia, we are focused on making certain every child has a good education. One of the features of have receiving money from the state would be more oversight. So currently, as you know, there are a lot of students already in private schools and homeschooling in the state of West Virginia with minimal oversight over how they're doing, what they're doing. The HOPE scholarship participation would be, of course, keyed in to much more scrutiny. And all of the educational uh, money is going directly to vendors, which means that the state of West Virginia is going to know what curriculum is being purchased, 
what type of educational models are being used, uh, tutoring services, education service providers, all of those are going to actually have to get approval by the state treasurer in order to be able to participate, which actually means we're going to have a much better idea of what is going on with all of the students in West Virginia. So if that provision remains, which I don't know if, if it will or not, um, that's actually what is going on. We're actually putting more oversight on what is going on with all of our kids. And, you know, our focus should be on all of our kids. They all matter. Sure. Um, and, Senator, the, the, the level of public funding that would go toward this, um, what, what level would you feel comfortable seeing going toward this education savings account? So the way that it was written, which would be the state average, um, is actually um, pretty generous, I have to say. But I want to point out that that can change. So it's written so that if there is, for example, a lot more participation than what we expect, that state average is going to automatically go down. And in terms of what I consider you know, an important figure, that would be really difficult to say. As you know, I have been an advocate of not having one size fits all and the affordability of educational services in the eastern panhandle where I represent is very different than other parts of the state of West Virginia so it'd be really hard to tie it to a specific figure. Delegate Hornbuckle on the floor you um, you had said that this you had said this is the hoax scholarship um, and also minority members um, have said uh, on the floor that this bill and others this session, like the work stoppage bill and the charter school expansion bill, are, quote, chipping away at public education. I'd first like to ask you to talk about specific objections that you have to this HOPE scholarship program. Well, yes, ma'am, and, and all due respect to uh, Senator Rucker, who I think does a fine job, I would have to respectfully disagree uh, on the notion of that it does not take money away from our public education system. Uh, if you have $4,600 uh, via a voucher, and it comes out and follows the student and therefore goes to homeschool participation uh, or a private school participation, that funding is still not in the school because it's followed the child to the new school. Uh, and they all still have, you know, overhead expenses that they have to maintain uh, and a classroom structure. Uh, so we do feel uh, that it will, uh, you know, depreciate, if you will, our public education system. So that's the main thing. And then you have, uh, you know, the school choice issue. So in theory, the idea of school choice is not a bad idea, uh, but how we're doing it, uh, I think, is not the best way to go about it. Uh, for instance, our state, uh, very rural, okay, the topography. Uh, so I think currently only 13, uh, I think there's about 13 counties that, that do not have private schools. Uh, so that means that that child is going to have to take um, an exorbitant amount of transportation cost uh, to get to the nearest private school if that was their quote-unquote choice. Uh, when we look at kids with IEPs, uh, currently right now public schools mandate uh, the quality and quantity of services for those students, uh, whereas another structure may not. So that's going to be another cost uh, that's going to be encumbered by the parent or guardian of that child. Uh, so, you know, just a few differences on what it's going to really cost uh, to that uh, parent in household. What do you think needs to be addressed this session that you feel may not be getting enough attention? Well, I know, you know, when it comes to the public education, for one, 
when we're talking about the charters, I think the charters opened up the provision for the virtual. And uh, I think I would probably stand in unison with everybody in our state that that's probably not the preference of, of, of our children, as most of us have been clamoring to get back into the schools and not to have a, a virtual setup. So that's the thing that I think right there. Uh, you know, first and foremost, we got to get back to the blocking and tackling. I'm a coach, so I like to use those words. We still have not found the proper respect for that profession of teachers and being supportive enough for them in their professional development to be able to provide and deliver uh, uh, the best curriculum uh, uh, to our students. So I think we need to you know, really shift our focus there. Uh, I also know that uh, through testimony, uh, through uh, education in the house, we saw that there is a disproportionate amount of uh, uh, expulsions and punishments uh, uh, to minority students, uh, so I think we need to be addressing that as well. Uh, but all in all, again, it's just blocking and tackling, make sure we're being as supportive of our teachers uh, to provide them the best professional development to do their job. Senator, I'd like to give you an opportunity to respond to some of the comments and concerns that Delegate Hornbuckle has brought up. Absolutely, and I appreciate that, and definitely appreciate Delegate Hornbuckle. We've always had a good relationship, and, and I think we both care about the same things in terms of making certain that our public schools and our kids get what they need. And I'm grateful that he brought up his concern about, you know, virtual and how, you know, he agrees with me that our kids really should be back in-person school. The thing with remote learning is that we, through that, are our education system without preparation, without the proper tools, without the infrastructure. Um, so allowing a virtual online charter school as an option to our counties to be able to offer to their parents and students who don't feel comfortable, who don't want to you know, be in that situation. And I want to point out our teachers too. There are some of our teachers who are not comfortable being in person, who prefer a different model. So once again, it's about flexibility, it's about innovation. And there are states that have had virtual online for over 20 years in charters. And guess what? They were much better prepared for this pandemic than we were. And they were able to replicate the lessons they had learned because they had attempted this experimentation earlier before it was forced on everybody. So again, it just shows like one of the benefits of freeing up our counties to have more options to experiment and to be more flexible. And I want to point out that when it comes to, you know, this idea of school choice, um, Delegate Hornbarkle brought up something that I'm very passionate about, which is the minorities, not just the disciplinary issues, but how they're doing in our schools, how well they're getting what they specifically need. Public charter schools in states that have a higher concentration of minority population have seen incredible results. The highest results in increased outcomes have been in those populations, um, New York, Washington, D.C. And I just want to point out that this is not about... Um, punishing or hurting public school teachers, public school, or I should say certified teachers can teach in a public charter school just like they can teach in a traditional school. But what I want to see happen is us giving every opportunity to try what might work. And when we find something that is successful as a model in a small limited charter school, we can replicate it. We can say we can find out and learn lessons that then can be helping everybody in the state of West Virginia. And thank you, Senator. I, I have to cut us off now. Oh. We have just a few <laughs> seconds. Uh, Hornbuckle, I want to give you the final thought of our of our discussion. Well, I appreciate this discussion. Uh, while we have difference of opinion on, on charters and ESAs, uh, I, I do highly respect uh, Senator Rucker, and I think we need to start working. Uh, 
more collaboratively in, in the future. Uh, I think we can have a great working relationship. But three things I didn't get to touch on that I think we really need to hone in on. Uh, one is mental health uh, with our students. I think that is uh, oh so key. Uh, I know our state is trying our hardest uh, to uh, produce broadband across the state. Uh, again, we just have to have it, not just for in the classroom, but for other opportunities outside the classroom. And number three, uh, in the House, we are currently working on what we call the Student Rescue Act, uh, which is going to promote uh, a statewide uh, program for summer uh, courses to help with credit recovery and remediation. Senator Patricia Rucker, the chair of Senate uh, Education and Delegate Sean Hornbuckle, the minority chair of House Education. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Joining me now with an update on action from the House of Delegates, our Report for America Corps member, Emily Allen. Emily, welcome to the program. Let's get right into the broadband bill, a very large bill, House Bill 2002. It made it through the House to the House floor. Today, it's in the Technology and Infrastructure Committee. Tell us what it does. Sure, uh, well, you should know that the bill is large. It's more than 40 pages long, and it touches a lot of portions of existing state code. Um, it, it has changes to code dealing with the division of highways, um, so that telecommunications carriers can install their facilities and you know appropriate rights of way. Um, it also changes state code regarding uh, cable services. So broadband is now a part of that and there's consumer protection items for broadband users in the state of West Virginia. This code also notably formally uh, codifies the Office of Broadband, which is something new the governor's office created last year. Um, and the, the Office of Broadband works with the Broadband Enhancement Council and uh, both are kind of responsible for delegating a lot of responsibilities in this bill. There's also several provisions dealing with data collection and mapping of underserved and unserved broadband areas in the state, so it really accomplishes a lot. And we heard uh, today, or this week rather, uh, comments by members of the House and uh, the, the Chair of Technology and Infrastructure. Yes, yeah, so uh, Delegate Daniel Linville, a Republican from Cabell County. He's the chair of the committee. He's also the lead sponsor behind this bill and has done a lot uh, regarding broadband. So you're gonna hear from him um, just talking about what the bill means to him, along with uh, Delegate Mick Bates, a Democrat from Raleigh County. Uh, both have uh, great bipartisan things to say about the bill, as you'll, as you'll hear. Now, Mr. Speaker Pro Tem, I suggest that the state of West Virginia learn from our mistakes. And I suggest that as we look to fund broadband expansion in the state of West Virginia, that we finally build publicly owned, but not operated, publicly owned middle mile broadband infrastructure. So we don't need to be in the delivery business. We don't need to be a UPS or FedEx. And we certainly don't need to create a new United States Postal Service, which is going bankrupt all the time. But we do need to build the roads. We need to build these internet highways. And what I propose that we do with $50 million this year is to build those roads. Let's fix the darn internet. What we have to do is build to the areas that we know currently have no service and no funding source, and then allow the private sector to build off of that and to be able to serve these West Virginians. You have to have it. You have to have it for school, you have to have it increasingly for healthcare to see the doctor when you can't see the doctor. This year has taught us many things. One of those things is how essential it is to be connected to the outside world with effective technology. 
Mr. Speaker Pro Tem, we have spent hundreds of millions of dollars of public money to get something these companies aren't providing, and we're about to spend hundreds of millions more. They need to be held accountable for that money and the service they provide and don't provide and for what they charge. And Emily, that's expected on the House floor by next week. Yes. Okay. We want to go on and talk about House Bill 2598. Um, this morning, there was what organizers called a people's public hearing. Uh, this is a bill that would change um, a law that was passed a couple years ago in response to that 2014 chemical spill that contaminated water for thousands, hundreds of thousands of residents in the Kanawha Valley. Tell us about this particular bill. Sure, so this bill, uh, House Bill 2598, uh, it amends the Above Ground Storage Tank Act, like which you mentioned was established after that 2014 spill. Um, by redefining the act, it exempts oil and gas tank operators uh, who have tanks within a five hours distance of a drinking water intake site. Um, that's notable because, uh, you know, in the last so many years since we passed that original act, the legislature has exempted other uh, gas and oil operators who have tanks, you know, within greater distances of these sites. So essentially these tanks are the ones that are closest to our drinking water intake sites. And I understand it, it came out of energy and then uh, was uh, sent by the speaker uh, to the Health and Human well, Resources Committee. Yep, they had originally uh, denied a request to send it to health because um, there are some concerns that these tanks, if not checked, uh, could link or leak some, you know, sort of dangerous substances into the water if unchecked or, you know, in uh, excess. So, yeah, it's in health now. Um, you know, there were requests to the House Energy and Manufacturing Committee, which originally passed the bill, to have a public hearing. Um, and the chair of that committee denied those. So yes, there was a, a people's public hearing this morning, uh, mostly just people expressing concerns and disagreeing with the bill. All right, we're gonna continue to follow that. Thanks so much, Emily Allen. As we close this evening, a reminder to listen to West Virginia Morning Daily for legislative updates and go to our website for the latest news at wvpublic.org. We stream daily the floor sessions on the West Virginia channel and we'll be back next Friday night for a wrap up on the legislature today. I'm Suzanne Higgins. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us. Have a safe weekend.